Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, here's what it says. These are the visions or the oracles that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw these visions during the years when Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. If you look in your Old Testament, the, the, the book, uh, the, the collection of writings that we call Isaiah has sometimes been called the Bible in miniature. There are 66 books of the Bible and 66 chapters in Isaiah. It's a long book that covers an immense amount of history. Isaiah was this prophet who in chapter 6 receives this powerful call from God. He has a long ministry spanning the reigns of many kings. He serves as a political and religious counselor. And in the, the book of Isaiah, there's prophecies and hymns and speeches and parables and history. It, and in many ways, like Isaiah is, is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. They're always looking back and referring to and calling out Isaiah. Jesus refers to and quotes Isaiah many, many times. In it, you see kind of the whole picture, the whole scope of God and his work. In Isaiah, Isaiah as a prophet is opposed to social and political evil on, on all levels. And he becomes this advocate for trusting in God and God alone. In it, Isaiah speaks to, uh, in his time, there are two kingdoms of God, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem is. And in this time, in Isaiah's span of, uh, of influence, Judah and Israel both, like these kingdoms of God, are in crisis because they've taken their eyes off the prize and specifically God's people, but, but, but specifically the leadership, Israel's kings and Judah's kings have not remained faithful. Here's what it says in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. We're going to look at several passages about this. Isaiah speaking on behalf of God says, listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. An ox knows its owner and a, don a donkey recognizes its master's care, but Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for, for them. And, and oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with the burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. It goes on in just a few verses later. Isaiah says that the people of God, like, like they've, they've rebelled against him. And he even talks about their head is injured and their heart is sick. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says, their land is full of idols. The people worship things they've made with their own hands. In chapter 5, verse 7, he says, the nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies, and the people of Judah are his pleasant garden, and he expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. From God's people, he expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. 
And as a result, in chapter 5, verse 14, here's what it says. Because of their rebellion, because they, they've traded justice and righteousness for violence and oppression, here's what it says. The grave is licking its lips in anticipation. I love that picture. Opening its mouth wide. The great and the lowly and all the drunken mob will be swallowed Further on in chapter 5, it says the rebellion of God's people, the, the way they're treating the poor and the widow and the orphan, like all of these things will be a signal. It will be a signal to distant nations far away. It's going to be this whistle to the ends of the earth that this nation, that the people of God are no longer under the protection of God. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 17, here's what it says is going to happen. It says, then the Lord will bring things on you and your nation and your family unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. And that day the Lord will whistle for the army of southern Egypt and for the army of Assyria. They will swarm around you like flies and bees. They will come in vast hordes and settle in the fertile areas and also in the desolate valleys caves and thorny places. In that day, the Lord will hire a, what's the word? A razor from beyond the Euphrates River. The king of Assyria is that razor. And he's going to use it to shave off everything. He's going to shave off your land and your crops and your people. You see, in that day, Assyria is the superpower. Uh, it's, it's looming and large, uh, like, like overshadowing things just out of the scene. Assyria is conquering one small nation after another, and none can stand before it. And there, Assyria and its king is on this incredible march to conquer Egypt, but in the way lies the small nations of Israel and Judah. At one point in time, uh, Israel tries to partner with Judah to, to fight off this evil king, to fight off the Assyrians. But the, the king of Judah, in all of his wisdom, partners with the evil king of Assyria against Israel. In scripture, when you read it, you're like, what's supposed to jump into your head is like, what an idiot. Because as soon as the king of Judah partners with Assyria, to defeat Israel, you know what happens? Assyria turns on him and takes over Judah too. And this whole time, Isaiah is crying out for the people of God to return to him and trust him. But again and again, they've forgotten him and they abandon him and they rebel against him. And eventually what happens is both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are defeated and the people are sent into exile. Like in this moment in history, the people of God are almost completely wiped out. In scripture, it's, it's one of the darkest moments. It's one of the darkest moments in the history of God's chosen people. And there's part of Isaiah, as you look at it and read it, you think, man, what, is there any hope in this? God's people have abandoned him. He's, you know, turned them over. They've been exiled. 
But if you look in chapter 6, there's this theme that runs through the razor of Assyria has come and, and cut down like a, the people of God are sometimes uh, described in the Old Testament as a mighty oak, right? This powerful tree that's long standing, but the razor of Assyria has come and cut it down. And you think, wow, what could be left? What are we going to do? How, how's, how is this thing going to continue? Is there hope left? And in the story of Isaiah, even though the people of God are cut down like a mighty tree, it says in chapter 6 that from the stump a holy seed will sprout. Do you have that picture in your head? From the stump of a tree a new seed is sprouting up. And you may think, okay, what does this have to do with Christmas and Advent? In chapter 9, Isaiah describes what that seed is going to be like. Here's what he says. He says, nevertheless, a time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. He says, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future... When Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with, what's the word? Glory. Keep going. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. And like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod. Sometimes Assyria was called the rod. Just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. And the boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. It'll be a new season of peace. Verse 6, see if this sounds familiar. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the whole government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And his government and its peace will never end, and he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. There's one final verse. Isaiah says, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. In chapter 9, you see this incredible like oracle of, of Isaiah, divine utterance. In the season of deepest despair and darkness, he tells the people, God speaks through Isaiah and says, this will not go on forever. A light will shine. And he gives this, um, uh, I know we don't have kings and queens here, but it's the, maybe the closest thing we have is a present president. Like, so the, do, I don't think we coronate a president, right? We inaugurate a president, right? Pretty similar, right? Like this is a similar idea. And, and in the inauguration of a new leadership, whenever like the government changes or there's new leadership, whether you like them or not, there's always like the, there's kind of anxious energy. There's, there's anticipation when government changes that, that there could be new hope, right? 
there's some anticipation that, that the season of difficulty could be over, that this one could bring something new. And what chapter 9 is, in many ways, is, is this like coronation speech of a new, not, not president, but a new king who will come. This new king will be unlike the earthly kings who denied God, like Hezekiah and Ahaz and all the other kings that led the kingdom of the, the people of God away. This new king will, will ignore like how they ruled and do things in a new way. This new king would bring about a season of well-being and prosper, prosperity. Remember what it said, like the boots of the warrior will be burned in the fire. They won't need them anymore. A new season of peace, a great like, like never seen or imagined before will come. And in this great like coronation speech of the king, the king is given four names or there are four throne names, four royal titles of the king. It's almost like when, when a president is inaugurated, he takes an oath of office that, that kind of outlines who he's going to be and what kind of president he or she could be, right? Like, and in that oath of office, these four names fit perfectly for the king. What kind of king is he going to be? He's going to be a wonderful counselor. What kind of rule is he going to have? He's going to be a mighty God, an everlasting father. He's going to be the prince of what? And so for this Advent, I want us to spend some time talking about these names of the king, these descriptors, these royal titles, throne names of who he is and what he's about. The first one is, is wonderful counselor. The word wonderful, is, it's just a modifier, meaning exceptional or beyond the norm or, or um, beyond like usual convention. But it also means like just effective. He's practical and beneficial. Like this is the opposite of what Judah and Israel's kings were. So he's exceptional. He's an exceptional counselor. Now this is a little bit different and maybe hard for us to understand. But in the Hebrew this like like counselor is not the one that you go and you sit on the couch and you prop your feet up and you you tell them all your problems, right? That's not what this word means even though it it is counselor. What it means is um governor or governance. Um Wonderful counselor could be uh, uh, maybe better translated wise governance, right? Like that's what it says before and after. The government will rest on his shoulders. It's not about just coming and sharing. I mean, I think, I think this king cares about your problems and that kind of stuff, but that's really not what this is about. This is about changing how life works. This new king in his new government will devise plans and policies for the benefit of the whole kingdom. He's a wonderful counselor because he's a king that pays attention to everything that's happening in the kingdom and brings about plans and policies that will benefit that kingdom. Are you with me? He's an agent of extraordinary plans and policies for 
public life. And I love what it says about this, like, like this kind of governance comes from this incredible wisdom that he has. I love what it says in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. I think maybe I have that. Here's that stump language. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of what? Wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on heresy. Hearsay, heresy, whatever that is. He will give, he will be better at grammar than I am in spelling. He will give justice to the poor. Right? Like, do you see how this wonderful counselor affects everyone in the kingdom? Give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear, wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby, the baby goat, the the calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and a child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear, the cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow and the baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little, hand, a little child will put his hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Do you get this sense that this one who is coming, this little child who's going to lead them, is, is going to just change the whole nature of how the world works, like change nature itself, Right? Like the lion and the lamb are going to be able to lay down together. Right? The cow and the bear and the child and a snake, right? Like like this whole order that was disturbed at the fall, go all the way back to Genesis, and you can see about the animosity between the serpent and the, right? This new one that's coming, this wonderful counselor is going to reorder things in a way that, that never before could or would have been imagined. He is a wonderful counselor. But in Isaiah's life, 66 chapters over the reigns of many kings and kingdoms, in Isaiah's life, the wonderful counselor never comes. They try a bunch of different kings. Uh, I know maybe this sounds familiar, but every king promised to do the things that, they, that he said he would, right? Like, but none of them are able to fulfill the promises. Yet Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 7, he says, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make it happen. Isaiah believed that in his life or in the next, like, like this king, this new sprout, this wonderful counselor would come. And that, that, that belief and that hope is the root of Advent. The people of God waiting and hoping and adventing the coming 
of the wonderful counselor king. Now fast forward 800 years. And in Luke chapter 2, there's two really unique characters that are hanging around. Uh, one is named uh, Simeon and uh, the other is a prophetess named Anna. And they're hanging around the temple of God. And, and what it says in, in Luke chapter 2 is that they're waiting. In fact, of Simeon, he is described as someone who is eagerly waiting for the Messiah. That guy that Isaiah talked about 800 years ago. That guy that, that Isaiah said, said, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies is going to bring, is going to make this happen. 800 years later, Simeon and Anna are in the temple waiting. They're adventing. And they're hoping, even, even God has somehow communicated to Simeon that, hey, Simeon, you're not even going to, you're going you're gonna to be around, you're going to see this, this shoot of Israel, this new wonderful counselor, you're going to get to see him before you die. So every day he's at the temple, waiting and hoping and wondering, is this going to be the day? And in Luke chapter 2, beginning verse 29, it's the day. That day has actually finally come when a young couple walks in with their son. Simeon takes one look at him, and here's what he says. He says, the sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you promised. For I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is the light. Remember what, what Isaiah said? Come, he is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon is, is glowing and basking in the presence of Jesus. And Anna, the prophetess, she walks up, and it simply just says, that, like, she. she had been waiting expectantly, and she just began to tell everyone about the child she had seen. They recognized that the one they'd been waiting for was right there. Now, maybe looking at this infant child, maybe you're, okay, well, how do you really know if he's the one? You know, maybe Simeon was just tired of waiting. You know, like, this looks like a likely candidate. Let's choose him. But if you fast forward even a little bit further, it's, it's in Scripture, there's a 12-year jump that happens between, between verse 38 and verse 40. But in Luke chapter 2, a little bit further down, Joseph and Mary are back to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And now 12-year-old Jesus is with them. They go through all the ceremony of the Passover festival and then with their kin, they all pack up and leave. And they realize like, they're, I mean, Mary and Joseph are not very good parents here. Let's just be honest. They realize three days have passed, foreshadowing, anyone following? And their son is missing. He's gone. And they, they go into this frantic search for their son, Jesus. 
Look what it says in uh, chapter 2, verses 46 through 47. It says, three days later, they finally discovered him where? In the temple. He wasn't playing with toys or, you know, hanging out. He was in the temple sitting among the religious teachers. Now, an interesting side note, rabbis sat when they taught. He was listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding. They were amazed at his answers. And you fast forward a little bit more. You see that Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. From the age of 12, he was already assuming the role of wonderful counselor. Do you see that? He was already bringing wisdom and authority into the lives of the people again and again and again. Scripture, especially the New Testament, tells us how wonderful the actions of Jesus are. How the people are constantly amazed at his teachings, at his wisdom, at his authority. Jesus' teachings and action display inexplicable wisdom. And still they're curious, is this the king? Because it's important to note, like with all of his wisdom and all that he offers, he never runs for office. He never supports a political party. He never holds a, a, a really any kind of position of authority. Yet through his wonderful, exceptional wisdom and authority, he inaugurates a whole new government. It's a government where fairness and justice and peace are epitomized. The government Jesus brings is a government where mercy triumphs over judgment, uh, a government where reconciliation is valued even over worship. It's a government where little children are welcomed, a government where, where people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people are welcomed, a, a government where the widow and the orphan are cared for, a government where the whole structure of power and authority are inverted, right? That whole first will be last and the servant will be the leader. He brings about a whole new different kind of government where faith and obedience to God are the rule and love is the highest goal. It's a government where sin and death have lost their power and new life is possible. He doesn't do it like any other king before him does it, did it, right? He's, he's not a politician. He's not pushing for policy. And yet he brings about this different kind of government, almost an internal government right? He shows people a new way of life. And what you see from his teachings and his example in his life is that the old limits of the possible have been exposed as fraudulent inventions designed to keep the powerless in their places. Jesus, in his teachings and his wisdom and authority, opened the world to the impossible, 
And what I would encourage you to consider today is that Jesus is still our wonderful counselor. That his plans and policies, they are, they are beyond the norm. And they're for the benefit of everyone. As much back then as he, it, it, it is today, Jesus, in, as the wonderful counselor, he contradicts the wisdom and authority of this world. You think so? He's still as controversial. His, the way he comes about this extraordinary governance is very different. His wonderful teachings open new possibilities that were thought to be impossible. The government and its peace, Isaiah says, the government and its peace will rest on his shoulders. And this is super important. If we claim to be servants of the wonderful counselor, then the government and its peace rest on our shoulders too. He summons us as our wonderful counselor, as our king. He summons us, his servants, to continue his subversive mission. And it is subversive, right? Oh, you're angry with somebody? Why don't you go and settle it first? Why don't you go ahead and let the little kids come? Why are you holding them off? Like the ideas he has about the world and how it works are still radical. And he summons us, his servants, to engage and be a part of it. And the, maybe the best way that we advent him is by exposing the fraudulent wisdom of this world with the light of his wonderful counsel. When the Magi show up, I know you guys are going to hear a bunch of this Christmas story stuff, but when the Magi show up in, the, in, that, in that cave or stable or whatever it was, when the Magi eventually show up beside the infant Jesus, they don't bring baby blankets or rattles or little like mobiles with stars on them, right? Uh, they don't bring... Um, car seats or bimbo seats or burp cloths or what are those little things you put around a baby's neck? The, the spit-up cloth? What is that thing even called? A bib. <laughs> um, when the Magi show up, they don't bring anything that, that Kim and Brian are going to get right after this, right? I don't think. When the Magi show up, what do they bring? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were kingly gifts meant for a king at his coronation. So my question for you is this, just this, you know, it's the first day of December and here we are getting into this Christmas season. My question for you is, is that happening in your house this Christmas? Does it look like a coronation ceremony? 
in, in, in what you're doing and how you're living and in how you're making decisions and how you're interacting with the world around you? Are you crowning Jesus Lord of your life? Are you ushering in and obeying and practicing his wonderful counsel? In just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer and uh, dismiss you to a time of communion. The elements of communion are in three tables around the room. If you're new with us, this is uh, just our time to reflect and to share, to meditate, to, to consider all that God's word has exposed and drawn out of us. And I hope that's happening. If God's put it on your heart to respond in some way, I'll just move to the back. I'd love the chance to pray for you or, or serve you if there's any way that I can. Well, I'm going to say a prayer and uh, uh, we'll, I'll dismiss you to that time. Father God, I thank you for your word. God, let <laughs> maybe like the word that needs to be in our prayers this, this season is, is, is King Jesus. Let us, God, consider you our King and let us consider your governance, and 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 we don't care how how it shows up, or if it's a you know a, a state governance or or a nation governance. God, it, it is our governance. Let us show that you and your wonderful counselor are what matter to us. Let us, as your servants, proclaim you king and advent you as king. And let us look longingly and expectantly for your return. And when you return, Father God, let you find us living out your word and your truth and your power in this world. Father God, let us advent you with our lives. May our lives crown you each and every day as king. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for the newborn king. That's in his name that everyone together says, amen. I invite you to enjoy time of communion together.